Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am starting on the book of Titus. I'm going to do the first nine verses in Titus chapter 1 in this audio. I need to give some introduction to the book. The author, of course, was the Apostle Paul. The recipient was his good friend Titus, who was one of Paul's converts, most probably. His son in the faith, as we see in verse 4. Paul is famous because when Paul left Antioch to discuss the problems of legalism in the church, the Judaizers there in Antioch were saying you had to get circumcised, etc., and follow the Lord law in order to get saved, Paul took Titus with him. And Titus was a Gentile, and Paul refused to circumcise Titus because that would make it look like that circumcision was a requirement for salvation. So Titus sort of became a poster boy in Paul's message of freedom, theological freedom. So Titus vindicated Paul's message. We read that in Galatians 2, 3, 4, and 5, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. This issue arose because a false brother smuggled in who came in secretly to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even an hour for that, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. So Paul had this life-and-death struggle with legalism, and he took Titus, uncircumcised, right into the hotbed of legalism to Jerusalem church. And I imagine that took a little courage for Titus, too. Titus is not mentioned in the book of Acts. He's mentioned 13 times elsewhere in the New Testament. Some people speculate it's because Titus was a relative of Timothy, maybe even his brother, and it would have been unseemly for him to toot the horn of his brother in Luke's literary works. Maybe so. I don't know. It is surprising, though, because Titus was everywhere with Paul. Not only at the Jerusalem Council, he worked with Paul at Ephesus during the third missionary journey. While Paul was at Ephesus there at the end of that journey, Paul sent Titus to work with the church at Corinth. I don't have the quote in front of me, but it's well known that he did that. And then Titus worked with Paul briefly in Crete after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome on Paul's so-called fourth missionary journey, the journey that's not recorded in the book of Acts. Paul asked Titus to meet with him at Nicopolis after Titus finished in Crete. Now, Nicopolis is a city on the west coast of Greece in present day. I think it's Albania, somewhere up there. We read in Titus 3.12, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. In a minute, I'm going to give you a, when I talk about where Paul wrote the letter from, I'm going to give you a possible itinerary that Paul took and where he was when he wrote this letter and asked Timothy, uh, asked Titus to come meet him in Nicopolis. After Paul, after Titus met Paul, after Titus went to Nicopolis, he went to, assuming he went to Nicopolis, I assume he did. After that, he went on to Dalmatia, which was further north of Nicopolis there on the Adriatic Sea on the western coast of Greece, Macedonia, on up into what the present-day Balkan area, Illyric, the, what the Romans called Illyricum, excuse me, Illyri- yeah, Illyricum or Illyria, I'm not sure which of the two it is, but up there in that area where Slovenia is today, where Melania Trump is from, Dalmatia. So Titus went up there. It's last, and once he does that, it's the last we hear about him. He was obviously a capable and resourceful leader, given all the assignments he had. Now, in this particular book, the assignment is to how to deal with churches in Crete. So this is why it's called a pastoral epistle, because it's talking about church stuff. Who carried the book to Titus? Who carried the letter to Titus? Zenos the lawyer and Apollos. We read in Titus 3.13, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Now, the providence. Where did the book come from? Well, there are several options. 
The commentator Burks says it's from Corinth, a website I found called biblical.com, which I'm not familiar with, but it says it could be Nicopolis that he wrote it from. So let me give you a, su a suggested route of Paul after his release from his first imprisonment. He goes from Rome to Crete. Paul meets Timothy there. Excuse me, Paul meets Titus there on Crete, and they work together shortly on Crete, evangelizing, getting churches started. Then Paul leaves from Crete, and he goes either to Corinth or Nicopolis. Some people say Corinth, some people say Nicopolis, and it and from one of those two places, he writes back to Titus on Crete and says, how about come meet me at Nicopolis? But then, unfortunately, Paul probably got arrested and, went and was taken back to Rome, some people say. Other people say he went from Nicopolis on to Spain. And then he went from Spain up to southern England, back around Spain again, south of Spain, back over to Rome, and he's in prison for the second time. And as you can see, Paul's movements during after the book of Acts are highly debated. Some people say he didn't do anything. He was just killed during the first imprisonment. I don't I don't think that's possible. There's too much problem here talking about Nicopolis and Crete that doesn't fit in with the other journeys and acts. So I'm going to assume like most people do, most scholars do, most commentators do, that Paul engaged in missionary activity after the book of Acts closed. Now, when was the date? Well, it was obviously after the first Roman imprisonment, so roughly between 63 and 65 A.D., and of course people debate on when Paul was killed. Let's just say in the mid-60s he was killed, so this is right before he was killed. What are the distinctive characteristics of the book of Titus? Doing good, good deeds. In fact, the two main points of Christianity are emphasized in this book, word and deed, good teaching, good activities, good actions, good teachings, good actions, which is a classic summary of the Christian doctrine. Well, let's put it this way. Titus gives classic, Paul gives classic summaries of Christian doctrine to Titus, but then he also exhorts him to live it out within his practice. And of course, I think Paul does that. I think all the gospel writers do that. Much of the contents in Titus are also in First Timothy, as Clark points out, especially when it comes to qualification for, for elders. All right, so we'll start now in verse 1. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, to build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul calls himself a slave, a slave of God. He usually calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ, but here he calls himself a slave of God, God the Father. He does this a lot. He's not ashamed to call himself a slave of God. Acts 16, 17, as she followed Paul, that's the demon-possessed girl in Philippi, I believe it was, and she followed us, she cried out, these men, on the second journey, she cried out, these men who were proclaiming you the way of salvation are the slaves of the Most High God. See, the demons knew it. They were the slaves of, the, of God. Romans 1, 1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 6, 6, don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but as slaves of Christ. James 1, 1, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 16, as God's slaves live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves. Now, when you put all those verses together and you don't translate slaves as servants, the Holman Christian Study Bible says translates it as slaves, it really emphasizes the point is that our lives are not our own anymore. That's what's what the definition of a slave is, right? You don't have any freedom. You can't go out and get your own job or your own marry who you want or buy a house where you want to. And, you know, the typical things we associate with freedom you can't do as a slave. I 
And Paul says he's a slave to God the Father and to God the Son. And the idea is, is we don't do things on our own motion. We ask him what we should do and when we should do it, and then we do it. And that, my friends, is the secret to a happy life. The apostles are honored to call themselves a slave of God. Contrast that with Satan, who, as Milton said in Paradise Lost, would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. People want to be free, and they end up being free in hell. They want to be free in their cocaine dens. They want to be free in, in their Playboy mansions. They want to be free on their orgy islands. They're not free. They're slaves. This is the only place, incidentally, it's a little factoid here, where Paul calls himself a servant of God as opposed to Christ. James uses both terms, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. It just Well, it does matter. It shows that God and Christ, they're both divine, God the Father and God the Son. Sort of a Trinitarian proof there. In another place, Paul calls himself an apostle like he does here to Titus, Romans 1.1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. He's got the humble status for a slave, then called as an apostle. Ooh, that might be a little higher. Called as an apostle. He's not ashamed of being an apostle. Now, one more remark about verse 1 I think is kind of interesting here. Paul says, why was he called to be an apostle? To build up the faith of God's elect. Not just to save them, but to build up their faith and to build up their knowledge of the truth. And what does this knowledge of the truth leads to? lead to? It leads to godliness. And that just shows that just mere academic knowledge of the word is not the aim, is not the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of our knowing the truth is that our lives might become godly. The knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. There's no question. You soak yourself in the scripture and then pray about it and help God for you to do what you see. You're going to become more godly. At any rate, Paul was called to do that, to lead people into knowledge of the truth and to godliness. And notice, and notice there's no dichotomy between study, knowing the truth, and godliness. People say, oh, you just stuff in your head full of facts, you're, but you're, you're hating Jesus. You know, uh-uh, don't do that. Of course it's true you can stuff your head full of knowledge about facts and don't love Jesus, but it's not necessary. Why make a false dichotomy? It's also possible to love Jesus and never read the Bible, and pretty soon you get cold. And you start backsliding, and then you don't have the equipment that you need in order to fight the battles of your life. And everybody has battles. So it's a false dichotomy. We, we need knowledge, and we need godliness. We don't need one or the other. Titus 1, verse 2, Paul continues, In the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In other words, he wants to increase their faith. He wants to build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. He wants to do all that, verse 2, in hope. In the confident expectation that, because that's what hope means, in the hope of eternal life, in the confident expectation that I'm going to live forever, that he's going to live forever with eternal life, in the hope of eternal life, that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So this eternal life was promised before time began. Now the question is, is when did he promise that? Well, John Gill says, as early as the choice of God's elect in Christ before time began, that means when God elected the, the elect, well, that makes sense to me. That's basically how I read that. But Adam Clark's got an interesting idea. He says it's before the giving of the law because that word there, well, the translation of the word of, of the, the Greek phrase there is pro chronon ionion. Now, ionion is age, chronion is time, and pro is before. So before, and it's plural, before the times of the ages. Or before eternal times. Well, before eternal times is sort of a contradiction in terms, is it not? So the translators have to do something. So they say 
before the world began. In other words, a long time ago. Well, Paul Paul says before the world began is referring to, it really should be, or Clark is saying this, Adam Clark, he's saying that before the Jewish ages began, before the secular times referred to us by the Jewish jubilees, which is how the Hebrews computed time, before that, before the Jews were here with their times and their festivals and so forth. So he's saying that this eternal life was promised before the Jews became a nation, basically. Well, that's interesting, but I don't think it really matters. It means that there was a time when it was hidden, but it's not hidden anymore. It's revealed. And when God reveals something, he cannot lie. Here's some scriptures that show that God cannot lie. Romans 3, 4. Absolutely not. God must be true, even if everyone is a liar. He must be true. Hebrews 6:18. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. He promised you eternal life. And how long is eternal? It means from now till forever. It doesn't mean now until the first time I backslide, then I unbackslide, and now eternal life starts again. No, it means eternal. God cannot lie when he promised that. Jesus promised eternal life. Now, there are other people that can lie. The Cretans, Paul mentions in Titus 1.12, one of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I don't know who one of their prophets was that said that. Paul quoted it to good effect here. So Paul is telling Timothy, you're dealing with the Cretans. Watch out for those Cretans who are lying all the time. How about the devil? John 8:44. You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has not stood in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of liars. But contrast that with God, who cannot lie. The devil who does nothing but lie. It's his own nature to lie. But God, the opposite of that, tells the truth, is the God of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God cannot lie. Titus 1.3 In his own time, he has revealed his message in the proclamation that I was entrusted with by the command of God our Savior. What does it mean in his own time, in God's own time? Here's Adam Clark's quotation. God caused the gospel to be published in that time in which it could be published with the greatest effect. It is impossible that God should prematurely hasten or causelessly delay the accomplishment of any of his works. Jesus was manifested precisely at the time in which that manifestation could best promote the glory of God and the salvation of man. Well, what are some examples of that timely time, if you will? Timely things that helped the advance of the gospel. The Roman peace, the Pax Romana, there were no wars hindering the movement of missionaries from place to place. Another thing that helped the spread of the gospel, another thing about this timely time, this proper time that God revealed his message, was the worldwide religious disillusionment that was going on then. People were tired of living and scared of dying. There was a religious hunger everywhere, and Jesus, filled a, Jesus appeared to fill the vacuum. The NIV translates that in his own time and in his appointed season, which actually is a little bit better translation, I think. The crucial events in God's program occur at his designated times in history. He's the controller of history. Here's some other places where that concept appears. 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. 1 Timothy 6.15, God will bring about this, God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His own time. Now, Paul says to Titus in verse 3 in his own in chapter 1 in his own time he has revealed his message that shows that at one time it was hidden whether before the foundation of the world or before the Jewish 
race showed up on the planet. I don't know. And I often think about this. It was hidden. I've been reading a lot of or listening to a lot of Egyptian history and all those people's desire for the afterlife and their gods and all. They're constantly thinking of what's in the world beyond. And they were so screwed up in what they believe. And I thought, well, God, why didn't you send Jesus sooner so they could, these people could get it, get saved? Well, that to me is one of those inscrutable things of God's providence that I don't understand. or I don't pretend to even come close to understanding. But I'll tell you, it's sad what the human race has done without Jesus. has really gone off into some really bad stuff. Look at that, that jackal god, for example, in a, on Egyptian walls. Anubis was his name, the jackal god, ugliest sin. You think, God, this is what people are worshiping? It's terrible what they're worshiping. Paul has already said he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. In verse 1 and verse 3, he says, I was entrusted with this, this message, this word, by the command of God our Savior. So God commanded him, the God the Father, and God the Son commanded him. In his own time, he has revealed his word. The Homo Christian Study Bible says his message, but it could be word. And some people say that could mean he revealed his living word, Jesus. I don't think so because, well, it could be, but I think most probably it's the written word, his word. Paul preached that word according to the command of God, his Savior. What command? Well, apparently he's referring to scriptures such as this in Acts 9.15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. I think that was the command to Ananias. Yes, Acts 9.15 refers to Ananias, of the Lord's commanding Ananias, commanding Ananias to go. He's not commanding Paul, but in, but in doing that, he says, This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument. Acts 26.16, chosen instrument to do what? To take his name to the Gentiles, the kings, and the Israelites, both. Kings, too, like in the Roman Empire. Acts 26.16 get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen of what I shall reveal to you. This is Paul recounting his Damascus Road experience and encounter with Christ. And so Paul says, I have appointed, uh, Jesus says, I have appointed you, Paul, as a servant. So that's the command of God his Savior. I mentioned earlier that Paul that likes that expression of God our Savior. I've got the six verses in the in, that he uses that phrase in which he uses that phrase. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior. 1 Timothy 2.3, this is good, and it pleases God our Savior. Titus 2.10, nor stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness, so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Jude 1.25, to the only God our... That's actually not Paul, is it? So I should have... Scratch that one. But Jude says to the only God our Savior. Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. 1 Timothy 4, 10. In fact, we labor and strive for this because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of everyone, especially of those who believe. So God is our Savior. And I ask the question, Savior? Savior from what? Salvation implies confinement. Salvation implies something from which you need to be delivered. And the answer to that is sin and death. God is the Savior of us by delivering us from sin and death. Verse 4, Titus 1. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. There he calls Jesus our Savior just as he calls God our Savior. He calls Titus my true son. Most people say that means he led Titus to the Lord just like he led Timothy to the Lord. First Timothy 1, 2. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. First Corinthians 4, 17. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful son in the Lord. 
Well, there's another son here, Titus. Now, it could be that son is being used metaphorically, and they just got to be close. They became as they were father and son. I don't know. Most people think he was literally converted by Paul, just like Onesimus was in Philemon 1.10. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Is that, that could be a true son, or maybe it could be a metaphorical son. Going back to that phrase, Savior, Jesus our Savior, that's, that's terminology we use a lot, too. It's in the Bible, too. Paul uses that term, Savior, 12 times of Jesus in all of his letters, and half of them are in Titus. So he's big on Jesus being Savior in Titus. Verse 5, Titus 1, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and, as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. Now we're going to get this into this idea of ordination, appointing elders in every town. King James translates that as ordained, from which we get the term ordination, which of course is a formal ecclesiastical shindig that people go through in order so that they can be qualified to teach the gospel while nobody else can. Well, let's see what that means, this word appoint, or as the KGV says, ordain. Option number one, Titus chose the elders and presented them to the churches. Gil denies that, and I deny it too. That just cannot be what he meant. Second option, Titus recognized that the the elders that the churches themselves supported. Now, John Gill affirms that, and I think he's right. Here's the quote from Gill. What Titus was to do in this affair was to put the churches upon looking out and choosing from among themselves proper persons for such service, and to direct, assist, and preside at the elections and ordinations of them. For we are not to suppose that the ordination of elders was the sole act of Titus, or alone resided in him, but in like matter as Paul and Barnabas ordained elders in every church by the suffrages of the people, signified by the stretching out of their hands, in which they directed, presided, and also assisted in prayer with fasting. This is in Acts 14:23. Gill's referring to. Now, the KGV, the KGV's English word ordination has two Greek words that are translated that way as ordination. The first Greek word is kathistomi. That's in Titus 1:5, which is the verse where we are now. For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are mourning, and ordain elders in every city. The American Standard Version has a point elders in every city. NIV has a point. The New American Standard Bible has a point. Well, let's see what this appointing or ordination is. I'm going to read you from Vine's Greek Dictionary. Quote, to cause to stand over against, to appoint a person to a position. Not a formal ecclesiastical ordination is in view, but the appointment for the recognition of the churches of those who have already been raised up and qualified by the Holy Spirit. All right, so these elders had already been growing up in Cretan soil. The Cretan churches had got to know them, and so Titus is just supposed to go around and recognize what the brothers in the church have already, already decided. Now, there is one other place and one only other place where cathistomy refers to ordination, quote-unquote, Acts 6.3, Look ye out therefore, brethren, from among you seven men of good report, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. We may ordain over this business of collecting money. Excuse me, not collecting money, but taking care of ministering to the widows, the food distribution during that time when they were living in common because the Jews were from all over the empire coming to the Jewish festival. So those guys are appointed, set over. But now look at that verse. It's first in Acts 6, 3. Look ye out therefore, brethren. So who's to look out for seven men of good report? Brethren, who's supposed to decide that the seven men that they chose are of good report? The brethren are not the apostle, but the brethren. 
Who's supposed to decide if the seven are full of the Holy Spirit? The brethren. Who's supposed to decide if the seven are full of wisdom? The brethren. Now, how are the brethren going to make their decisions on all these issues unless it's based on what the seven people were already doing? So it was just recognizing, again, the idea of ordaining so-called deacons or servants in the church. They were appointed. They were appointed and recognized by the apostles after the other church voted on them, chose them, and after they observed their good behavior, their good report, their being full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and so forth. And I suggest to you it's a short jump to go from doing that for deacons to doing it for elders too. Just watch what they're already doing that they might prove themselves. The other Greek word for ordination is kairotoneo, Acts 14.23, and when they had ordained them elders in every church. This is on the second journey when Paul and Silas went back through the, and visited the church that Paul and Barnabas, the churches that Paul and Barnabas had established. And when they went back through, they ordained or recognized elders. And of course, if Vines is right, and I'm sure he is, these churches on the first journey had picked their own elders. And then Paul and Silas confirmed those elders and said, yes, we'll lay hands on them, show identification with and approval of them. Here's what Vine says about Caratineo, primarily used of voting in the Athenian legislative assembly and meaning to stretch forth the hand. Caratineo is said of the appointment of elders by apostolic missionaries in the various churches which they revisited. Acts 14.23 had appointed by the recognition of those who had been manifested themselves as gifted of God to discharge the function of elder. That's the way Vines puts it. The NIV margin on Caratineo says the word for appointed, that's ordained, Caratineo, contains the idea of an election, raising hands in a vote. So the idea is this, the apostles vote for or approve the elders which are already functioning in the body. Here's another good vote from Vines on Caratineo. It, Caratineo, is also said of those who were appointed not by voting, but with general approbation by the churches. I mentioned the word vote a minute ago. I should have said chosen, not voted on, because they didn't vote. They they just basically said, here, here, we all agree this person should be an elder. General approbation by the churches. In other words, the churches recognized a brother who was praised by all the churches for his service and by general consensus ordained him to the ministry courier. Ordained him to the ministry of courier. Okay, enough of that. Paul and Titus had, had, not, had not had enough time in Crete to appoint elders, and that's why Paul's asking Titus to finish the job. Normally, Paul would do it, Acts 14.23. This is with Paul and Silas, when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting. Appointed elders, they did it, but Paul had not had time to do it on Crete. Now, notice this little word, left. The reason I left you in Crete, well, that shows that Paul was with Titus in Crete, and then he left him. And, of course, as I said in the introduction, probably left Titus. Paul probably, after leaving Titus, goes to either Corinth or Nicopolis on the western coast of Greece. Now, when did Paul leave Titus on Crete? Probably after Paul's first imprisonment at Rome after he'd been let loose. Paul had personally visited Crete. As we said earlier, Adam Clark says this. And then, so there's two imprisonments. Assuming there's two imprisonments. Paul went to Crete, and again, my suggested route was from Paul, from Rome to Crete, and then to Nicopolis, or to Corinth, from which Paul wrote the letter of Titus to Titus, maybe even wrote First Timothy to Timothy, I don't know, people don't know, and then he leads from there, and he goes to Spain, 
and then back to Rome. Now let's go back to this interesting f- fact that Paul, that Luke never mentions Titus's name in the book of Acts. Well, excuse me, not only does he do that, but he also doesn't mention the visit to the island of Crete. Well, I think the reason for that is because it had not happened yet when Luke finished his book, because the first Luke didn't cover the second, the journeys after the first imprisonment. So Clark says this is a proof of two imprisonments. Here's his quotation, that he could not have made such an important visit a visit to Crete and evangelized an island of the first consequence without its being mentioned by his historian Luke had it happened during the period embraced in the Acts of the Apostles must be evident, it's evident to me, that the journey therefore must have been performed after the time in which St. Luke ends his history, that is, after St. Paul's first imprisonment at Rome, seems almost certain. The NIV Study Bible assumes that Paul and Titus were together there after having Paul after having been sprung from the prison in Rome. The NIV Study Bible says this quote. This implies this mentioning of left. I left you in Crete implies that Paul and Timothy had been together in Crete, a ministry not mentioned in Acts. So that seems to be the weight of opinion is that Paul operated outside of Rome after his first imprisonment, after he wrote the letters to the Philippians and the Colossians. Now, Paul says, appoint elders in every town. There were 100 cities on Crete. There were churches in most of them. Where did these churches come from? Here's some options. Option number one, these churches sprang from the Cretans who were at Pentecost. Acts 2.11, we read, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in their own language. And they mention Cretans. Option number two, some say Paul came to Crete in person to preach the gospel. So, that might be where the Cretan churches came from in those 100 towns, Paul personally being there. Clark said that Paul had been in Crete, though nowhere else mentioned, is clear from this passage. Now, because there were so many times, uh, towns and the time was short, this probably explains why they left things so unorganized with no pastors appointed, no elders appointed. Well, it says they visited every town. It sounds like they visited all 100. That's a lot of towns. All right, so option number one, where did these churches come from? From people coming back from Pentecost, option one. Option two, from Paul preaching the gospel on this short missionary trip. Option number three, from Jews scattered at the persecution of Stephen. There were a lot of Jews on Crete. Paul writes Titus in verse 10, for there are also many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from Judaism. So there were people, there were the Judaizers that were there. Now Paul encourages Timothy to Titus to appoint elders in every town, and he's going to give the qualifications for the elders that Titus will recognize as elders in the next couple of verses. Now, these qualifications he also gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Now, the interesting thing the NIV Study Bible says is the two lists reflect the different situations Timothy and Titus were in, and then they don't explain why the two lists are different. And to and so I made a note to myself to explore this further. Well, I haven't explored it, and I'm not going to right now. I don't know why things would be different for churches in on Crete or in Ephesus. I don't know why they would be any different. We go now to verse 6 of Titus 1, talking about qualifications for elders, one who is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of wildness or rebellion. That little short verse has a couple of controversies in it. The husband of one wife, what does that mean? That's the same thing that Paul says to Timothy. The elder should be the husband of one wife. What does it mean, a one-woman man? Well, here's some options. Some people interpret it spiritually and mystically. The elder is married to only one church. 
John Gill denies that. Well, I'm glad he does because I think that's absolute hogwash. <laughs> Another option, the elder must be married. He can't be single. John Gill denies that. And the you know, study Bible denies it. I'm glad because I don't think that's right. Now, Paul is just assuming that an elder is married because typically elders are older and elders are usually married. So he just assumes that they're married, but he doesn't say that they have to be married. I mean, that would disqualify him from being an elder. How about Timothy? Was he married? I don't think so. Option number three, the elder must not be a widower who has married a second wife after his first wife died because then he would be a two-woman man. Gill denies that. NIV Study Bible denies that. Why would you deprive a, a, a widower who's remarried from being an elder? That would make no logical sense. Or what about a widower who's married a second time and then his second wife dies and now he's a no-woman man if you're looking at living women. So therefore, he's not a one-woman man. So therefore, we're going to disqualify him. Or you could say he's a two-woman man if you count the women in the past. Well, Gil denies that. God bless him. Another option, fifth option, the elder should not be a bigamist or a polygamist because if he's a bigamist, he would be a two-woman man. And if he's a polygamist, he would be a three- or four-woman man. Gil affirms this. He says there are a lot of polygamists among the Jews on Crete. I don't know how he knows that. I read another commentator that said that polygamy was very rare back then in Paul's time. So maybe that's true, but I don't think it is. Here's option number six. The elder cannot be a divorcee who has married a second wife, either before he was an elder or after he was an elder. Now, there were lots of Jews among, lots of divorcees amongst the Jews on Crete, Gill says. I have no reason to doubt that. Now, this case here is a lot stronger because... What if the divorce was not because of proper behavior? Well, if he's a Christian when the divorce happens, I can un let's say he's gone out and committed adultery. Well, that's understandable. He shouldn't be an elder. But what happens if it's his wife committed an elder and it's not his fault? We're going to keep him from being an elder? A lot of churches would. I wouldn't. I, would, I, would, I don't want to condemn him to oblivion forever because of what his wife did. Now, if he did it, that's a different story. But I would probably base my opinion that he shouldn't be an elder based on reputation. The, the, he's supposed to have a good reputation. He doesn't really have a good reputation if he does that. But on the other hand, if he did something beforehand, I mean, Paul wasn't married. He was probably married at one time because he was a member of the Sanhedrin and was required to be, a, to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. Are we going to say Paul's not qualified to be an apostle because his wife left him? I, I wouldn't say that. The simplest solution here is to say that the elder should be a one-woman man and just stay faithful to his wife. He ought not to have a little bit on the side. He should be a philanderer. And this is what I always say. You get yourself in these controversies as to who can be an elder or not, and churches do that. It's up to your church. It's up to the consensus of the church because the authority of a church is within its own circle, its own boundaries. And if a church makes a decision that I personally don't like, it's none of my business. It's their their church. Or if it's my church that makes a decision I don't like, well... I was I was not going to be a cog in the wheel of consensus. All right. Paul, in verse 6, Titus 1, says that the elder must have faithful children not accused of witness, wildness or rebellion. First question, what happens if he doesn't have any children? Well, I don't think that can be it because there's the, the condition on there is very clear, faithful children not accused. So I think it's reasonable to assume that Paul is saying if you have children, they must be faithful and not accused of wildness or rebellion. Well, another option is, do the children have to be 
living at home. I know the problem is, do the children have to be living at a home, or could it be children outside the home? What if, what if you've got grown children, one of whom is backslid, and he's not inside the home? Well, I don't see how you can disqualify an elder for that, because now the, the whole purpose of requiring an elder to have faithful and not wild children is to show that he can manage his household well, as Paul told Timothy, and by extension, if he can ma- manage his household carefully well, then by extension, we know he can do the same with the church. Well, if you got an older, grown-up kid who's left the house, that has nothing to do with the elder's management ability. So I don't think that that would apply. Now, there's another problem. When it says the children must be faithful, does that mean they must be believers in Jesus, faithful to Jesus, or does it mean obedient children, faithful to their parents, but not necessarily believing in Jesus? Now, the commentators dispute on this. I read a nice article taking the, looking at the issue frontwards and backwards. Well, the option that the children must be believers, believers in Jesus, John Gill denies that. Adam Clark affirms it. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said, yes, they got to be the believers in Jesus so they can't be an elder. Well, let's see why John Gill denies that the children must be believers in Jesus. They must rather only be faithful to their parents and obedient. Quote, by faithful children cannot be meant converted ones or true believers in Christ, for it is not in the power of men to make their children such, and their not being so can never be an objection to their, to their being elders, if otherwise qualified. At most, the phrase can only intend that they should be brought up in the faith, in the principles, doctrines, and ways of Christianity, or in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I think Gill is right here, if you think about it, if God were on earth, he wouldn't be qualified to be an elder because his children, Adam and Eve, didn't behave so properly. They were not obedient children. They were not faithful children to him. Are we going to say God can't be an elder? I don't think so. Now, notice these children that the elder, if the, if, if the elder has children, they must not be accused of wildness or rebellion. Not be accused. It didn't say the children must not be wild or rebellious. They must not even be accused of it. In other words, they're guilty before proven innocent. High standard for your children. We go to verse 7, Titus 1. For an overseer as God's administrator must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not addicted to wine, not a bully, nor greedy for money. Now, overseer is the same thing as elder, same thing as pastor. I always use the passages in the passage in Acts 20, verses 17 and 28 to put all three of those words together with the same group of people. The, my, the Ephesian elders who had come down to Miletus to see Paul. But it isn't even a quirker way to do it. First Peter 5, 1 through 2. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So he's talking about elders here, and he includes himself. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd, verse 2, shepherd God's flock. And a shepherd is a pastor, one who feeds the flock. Poimeneo is the word, I think, in Greek. And so we can read it this way. I exhort the elders among you, pastor God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly. There's the overseer part, the supervisor, the administration part. Elders emphasizes age, shepherd emphasizes feeding, shepherd or pastoring emphasizes feeding, and overseeing emphasizes management and administration. They're all the same office with three different words. Translations in English are sometimes different. Sometimes the elder is called a presbyter. Sometimes an overseer is called a bishop. Sometimes a pastor is called a shepherd. Well, not often, but sometimes. So you see different English translations, but the Greek words 
There are only three Greek words, and they all mean the same thing. John Gill says the fact that here in the midst that the word overseer is in the midst of qualification show that old elder and overseer are the same thing, or as Gill puts it, a bishop and an elder, an overseer and an elder are the same thing. NIV study Bible says the use of elder in verse 5, this is in Acts 20, the use of elder in verse 5, and overseer or bishop in verse 7 indicates that the terms are used interchangeably, not to mention feed the flock, that's in Acts 20. Well, anyway, that's a, that's a standard thing. I know some people might be surprised at that, but you can call your elders overseers. You can call your pastors elders or your elders pastors. It doesn't make any difference scripturally. These elders are not to be bullies. Overseers are leaders, and leaders can easily switch from leading by example to leading by command. And you can lead by command. You're not really a bully, but there's a high standard for not being a bully in the New Testament church because you don't have any power to, to tell your flock to do anything except this, follow you. Be an example to the flock, Peter says. You start telling your flock what to do, you are fast heading into bullying territory. shouldn't do it. The overseer is not to be greedy. They're likely to have access to money. I would think people giving them donations for because so they could be have more time free up to lead the church or collections for the poor or for itinerant ministers coming through. Well, they might have access to money, and they not, their greed might tempt them to defecate with some of it. Paul says concerning elders of 1 Timothy, the same thing. Elder must not be greedy. And he said the same thing with deacons in 1 Timothy 3. Deacons must not be greedy for money. He mentions here in Titus, we're going to do this in the next audio, not in this one, but in Titus chapter 1, verse 11, he talk, he's talking about the false teachers. He said, he said, they overthrow whole households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. That shows that people back there in the ancient world loved to give money to teachers because teachers didn't have a way to support themselves a lot, and so these false teachers would get money dishonestly. So an elder is a teacher, and that means he would have access to money. People might be wanting to give him money, and so he gets greedy, and pretty soon he forgets what he's an elder for, to serve the flock, not to fleece the flock. 1 Timothy 6, 5, constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. That's talking about false teachers making money off of his listeners. And 1 Peter 5, 2, that's the verse I just quoted, quoted, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for the money, but eagerly, not for money. Don't be greedy. They're not to be arrogant either. Overseers are likely to be looked up to with admiration, which you can easily lead on to pride and arrogance. Not be hot-tempered. Leading churches can be very exasperating, because I'm telling you, people can be very exasperating. They can drive you nuts. An overseer is not a good job for hot-tempered people. You cannot lose your temper. And notice that Paul prefaces all these qualifications with the little word must. For an overseer as God's administrator, must. That means he has to. It means these are not suggestions. These are commandments. If you're going to be an elder, you cannot be any of these things. Arrogant, hot-tempered, addicted to wine, a bully, or greedy. No, that disqualifies you automatically right then on the spot. We go to verses 8 and 9 of Titus 1. Continuing with the qualification for, qualifications for elders, verse 8. The elder must be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. 
Now, why would an elder need to be hospitable? That was especially important back then, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, because there were lots of saints traveling and inns were hard to find. They were usually whorehouses. And on the road, robbers everywhere. Now, the Christians might be traveling because they were exiled, kicked out of their homes by authorities like Apollos and not Apollos, I'm sorry, uh, Priscilla and Aquila were. They could be more likely, probably, spreading the gospel as they traveled from town to town as itinerant ministers, apostles sometimes, elders sometimes, prophets sometimes. They were going around, evangelists, spreading the gospel. You're supposed to put those people up because otherwise they're going to be sleeping in the street or sleeping in the fields. Paul was big on hospitality, and the New Testament in general was big on hospitality. Here's five scriptures. Romans 12, 13, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality. That means chase it. Don't just put up with it. 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer must be hospitable. Hebrews 13, 2, don't neglect to show hospitality. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without complaining. 3 John 1, 5, dear friend, you are showing faithfulness by whatever you do for the brothers, especially when they're strangers. Now, the elder in verse 8 is also said it must be loving what is good. Now, interestingly, the King James and the Young's Little Translation translates that as a lover of good men. So an elder must be a lover of good men. In other words, but the other translations, like the Home of Christian Study Bible, it's, it's what you love is good. King James, Young's Little, it's who you love is good. I don't think it really matters. It's a translation problem. You obviously don't want to have bad men. You know, you don't want to invite some lowlife into your church to teach the flock when he doesn't know what he's talking about, that kind of thing, or somebody who has evil reputation. He should be sensible, righteous, holy, Separated from the world, dedicated to God, that's what holy means. He must be self-controlled. Other translations have temperate, such as the KGV. Most of the translations are either self-controlled or temperate. Here's Clark on that. Quote, self-denying and abstemious in his food and raiment, not too nice on points of honor, nor magisterially rigid in the exercise of his ecclesiastical functions. Qualifications rarely found in spiritual governors. Whoa. Adam, he's starting to be cynical like me. Isn't that a great way to put it, though? Self-control means you don't eat and drink a lot or put on fancy clothes. I can handle that. But also this subtle stuff, not too nice on points of honor. That's difficulty for people from the South because we have an honor society. I just heard this great cultural anthropological statement from a fellow Southerner from Georgia who said that some social scientist somewhere did an experiment, got a bunch of Yankees in one room, well, a bunch of Yankees, a bunch of Southerners in the same room, actually, taking the same test. But the f- test was bogus. And the, de- and the test takers were told, when they finished, take their test down the hall and leave it with somebody. Well, the administrator of this experiment had hired a fake person to stand in the hallway. And when, when the person finishing his exam was walking down the hallway, this fake person would deliberately just elbow him and just push him up against the wall. And they deter- found out that none of the Yankees fa- fought back. They just said, excuse me, and kept going. They were very polite. All of a sudden, was threatened to beat the crap out of the guy, threatened to hit him. So why was this? Well, because the South is an honor society. And it came, most, a lot of people in the South came were Scotch-Irish. And back there in Scotland or wherever it was that they were from, there was no way to keep one's sheep and livestock out of somebody else's 
fields. I hope I got the details right. There was no way to do that. The fencing wasn't available, whatever. So it was all based on honor that if you don't steal somebody else's stuff. And then somebody did steal, there had to be a defense against that because there weren't any fences. And so it was important that you stood up for your sheep. And so they would deliberately test new people in the area to see if they would stand up for their sheep and they'd deliberately insult them somewhere. And if the guy didn't stand up and offer to fight back, well, then he was not trustworthy because you have to do that to protect the sheep. So anyway, that somehow filtered down into Southern culture, which I found quite interesting. But Adam Clark says an elder cannot be too fastidious or too nice on points of honor. I mean, sometimes you got to let it go when somebody defames your honor. I had it one time with some investor guy who really, really dishonored me by basically libel. I mean, it was terrible what the guy said. And boy, that thing bugged me for a long time. And I know that's why. It was hard to let go of it because it's one thing if you steal from I, I had people steal money from me. I got over a lot quicker than somebody that insulted my honor. Anyway, that's a, n- a nice little excursus on a cultural anthropology, if you will. And this elder must not be magisterially rigid in the exercise of his ecclesiastical functions. In other words, hey, Brother Joe, could you do this for me? And Brother Joe doesn't do it. God is not happy with you, Joe. He is going to punish you severely for this. You know, you can't do that. Chrysostom, famous golden tongue orator, 5th century A.D., said, One having his passions, the elder must be one having his passions, tongue, hand, and eyes at command. Got everything under control. He must be able to refute those who are who contradict the gospel. He's got to refute that false teaching with sound teaching. He's got to teach those who simply want to learn the truth, of course, but he's got to do more than that. It's a lot harder to contradict people who are coming after you. People who are wanting to learn the truth, those are good students. Can you teach me this? What does this mean? Uh-huh. But boy, when somebody comes and tries to trip you up on every word, it takes dexterity to deal, to deal with them. It takes skill to, as the King James put it, rightly divide the word of truth. You've got to be able to do it. Now let's look at verse 9 where Paul tells Titus the elder must hold to the faithful message as taught. Home of Christian Study Bible. The King James has to the faithful word as taught. Either one will do okay. It's the gospel, basically what it's talking about. And in verse 9, Paul says, So that the elder will be able both, he must hold to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able to encourage with sound teaching. And that, to me, indicates that some teaching is not sound and, of course, should be avoided. That doesn't mean it's going to be perfect in every way. That Nobody does anything perfect. How many teachers have had to go back and say, you know, I changed my mind on that. Ooh, I didn't see this. You know, that happens. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about people out there, Gnostics, legalists, heretics, people who are obviously wrong. No, you've got to encourage people with teaching this not like that. It's sound. It's gospel teaching. Now, Paul says in verse 9, the elders must hold to the faithful message as taught. That that could re- refer to the message as taught to the flock or taught to the elder. I think it means taught to the elder because the elders had to be taught before they could teach the other elders. Now, this idea of sound teaching, the word, the word sound appears eight times in the letters to Titus and Timothy, but nowhere else in Paul's writings. Now, this is my idea about that. I suspect that that's because Timothy and Titus had to deal with so much false teaching. So Paul had sound teaching on the mind when he was writing his pastoral epistles. This idea of sound teaching, I said there were eight times. I'm going to give you four of them right here. 
1 Timothy 1.10, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching. 1 Timothy 6.3, if anyone teaches other doctrine and does not, a, not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness. 2 Timothy 1.13, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me. 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. So you see, Paul is concerned about sound doctrine. It reminds me of this young woman in college, a fellow college student of mine, that I took out for a date. She was a Christian. And, of course, I was back then I was interested in teaching even as I, as I am now. And I don't know what I said to her. It could have been because I applied the Old Testament verse that women should never wear pants, and she wore pants all the time. I don't know. That was really pretty stupid on my part. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. But at some point on this horrible date, she said she didn't believe in doctrine. She didn't believe in doctrine. She was a, she was not a charismatic. Now, she was a campus crusader, so don't start thinking wrong. Don't start making stereotypical assumptions. She didn't believe in doctrine. And I didn't say anything at the time, and I thought, well, how can you not believe in doctrine? you got to believe in something. If you don't believe in doctrine, you don't believe in anything. Well, later she became a Buddhist. She left the faith, apostatized, and became a Buddhist. She didn't believe in doctrine. That sounds like a Buddhist, doesn't it? Um, I'm not going to think about anything. I'm going to let my mind be blank. Um, sound doctrine, folks, don't leave home without it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with Titus 1, verses 1 through 9. In our next audio, Titus 1 verses 10 through 16, we'll discuss these false teachers that Paul wants to have good elders who, who can refute them and who hold to sound teaching. We'll discuss these false teachers in our next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>